join me in prayer. Our Father, we are so dependent upon you for these things we've just sung. God, how will we see you aright to worship you as we should, except that you help us? God, we need you to teach us and to guide us, to come near by your Spirit. God, we are so tempted to uh, alter you in our thinking, to consider that you are different than you are, that you are indulgent with us, or to redefine what righteousness looks like. God, we pray that you would bring us back again to see you as you are, your eternality, your incomparability, your holiness. God, grip us with the sight, the thought of you in all of your glory. And then God, grip us with the grace that you have poured out upon us in Christ Jesus. And God, we pray that our hearts would be freed from absorption with self or uh, thoughts of anything else to worship you as you deserve. God, we do pledge ourselves to you. We, we come as those who've been bought with a price. God, we don't want to draw any lines with you or hold anything back or pretend like everything is okay with us. We don't really need you. God, we don't want to have any pretenses or put up a, a facade. God, help us. We, your people, come and we look to you and we ask you, God, to, to feed us, to, to stir us, to guide us, to strengthen us. But God, we haven't come only to receive. We have come to give you praise. We have come to worship and to adore. And so, God, we look to you and we, we do bow with grateful hearts before you, our King of grace. We ask God that you would be pleased with our worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 50. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. 
the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, Walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Will the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word? All right, well, we're returning today to this question. How will you really follow Jesus of Nazareth. And for our time together this morning, we're going to be looking particularly at the way in which the Lord Jesus, while on earth as a man, how did he approach the scriptures? How did he respond to his father's word? And is that a pattern that could be followed by every person here this morning who, by the grace of God, is alive in Christ? I think that when we walk through any part of the scripture, but especially when we look at those familiar passages uh, that speak of the person of Christ and the activity of Christ and the teaching of Christ in the Gospels, it is easy to think of these things as a collection of stories or events that are meant to teach us concepts and we are to accept the concepts and we, we should appreciate the concepts But sometimes we stop there. Or maybe we are tempted to assume that because these are the familiar accounts that we've heard about throughout our entire life, if you've been in church all of your life, you think, well, I I agree with that and I already know that. And what we really have is a, a fairly vague grasp of what the passage is speaking about. And we've probably developed some wrong ideas. So those constant dangers, the thought that um, these are concepts to be accepted, lessons to be embraced, and these are passages we probably already understand. Uh, Those two unwanted traveling companions have to be guarded against so that we don't become, as we prayed this morning, 
people that look into the mirror of the word and then just walk away from it unaltered. When we come to the command of Christ, which we looked at months ago, and he turns to the people and says, follow me, that fundamental command really sums up the Christian's response, the, the response of the obedient person, of the believing person, all in, in one simple picture, following. Here is a lifetime of daily waking up and believing again Christ and turning away from every other um, filler and every lie that seems so reasonable, repenting, obeying, Expressing our love and trust and loyalty, loyalty to him in, in concrete ways. All of that is bound up in this little word, follow. The fact that we can follow Jesus Christ and, and that we must follow Jesus Christ is sometimes difficult to believe because it seems that around us, the religious culture says that that's optional for Christians. So, that is a good thing to do. It's a noble thing to do. It's a thing that we are to agree with. That follow me is fundamentally Christianity. You would be bothered if we invited a, a guest preacher into the pulpit. And the guest preacher started the sermon by saying, um, you know, so nice to be with you here. We're going to look this morning at the reality that the command of Jesus Christ to follow him is not a command for today. Maybe that was way back then. Uh, that's an optional command for preachers and missionaries. But you can be a Christian and disregard the command of Christ to be a follower. Sometimes we talk about this issue of lordship salvation and, you know, easy believism. And, you know, we say, well, if a person got up and said, as long as you accept the certain facts of the Bible, that's, that's all you must do to be justified, to be declared right with God, to be brought into his family. And then later, if you want to, it's optional, you could add obedience. If someone preached that to you, you, you would be very upset that we let them come and fill the pulpit. But it is so easy for every one of us to preach that to each other by simple choices we make where it becomes clear that we're not sure that follow me is, is essential for every Christian and we're not sure that it's possible. So I want us to look at those few things that are required for us to follow him and some of this is review. Remember weeks ago we looked at the fact that if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, he is going to have to do something in you when you come to him that enables you to really follow him and, and for it not just to be good intentions. And that is he's going to have to make you alive from the dead. And, and the spirit of Christ does that. He opens our eyes. We understand the Bible now. He changes the desires of the heart. We love what we're learning. He frees the will. That is, we find ourselves choosing to obey someone other than, you know, our pleasures. And as God does that great work in us, that really I find that that's not enough. That and all that follows 
You do need that to be clear in the mind. Or else I think we, we just tend to give up. We say, well, I, I would like to be a, a very concrete, real, practical follower of Christ. But I'm not sure that I can do that. And you need to be reminded of all that he has done for you and in you. All that now identifies you if you are in Christ. So to be aware of that, I find, does, um, is a great help to put away the constant lie that following Christ is not for you. Another thing that we have to be aware of in a, in a very experiential way, you know, in a daily kind of living way, is we need to be aware of the glorious sufficiency of Christ. So not just what he has made you, but who is he and what has he promised and what can you go to him for without fear of rejection. And so we spent some weeks to look at who he is, but that was a very short look, and now we're moving to the third thing. If we're going to be, in a very practical way, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need more than knowing what he has done for us and knowing his glorious sufficiency, but we are also going to have to know the path. Sometimes I think that the, the struggle we have as Christians to really come to grips with the essential nature of being a follower is that we're not sure what path we're supposed to follow. You know, you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone else asked you to follow them, if you're going to their house today, uh, this afternoon, you know, if someone says, well, just follow me. Well, we know exactly what they mean. Where, wherever they go, we just watch them where they go. We go what they do, we do. But Christ is in heaven enthroned at the right hand of the Father, how can you follow him? And you say, well, we look back at the New Testament, but he lived 2,000 years ago, and he lived in the Middle East. You know, he dressed differently. He, he talked a different language, and he had a very different task than any of us will have. So how can you follow him? And that's where the scripture is so essential, that in God's book, that these, these books that we have in our hands, you do see the truth about what he's done for us. You see the truth about his sufficiency, but you also see the very clear pattern of Christ, not just the specific tasks, traveling from town to town, teaching, preaching, miracles, dying for sinners, raised, ascended, but you see the general patterns in scripture, either in his life or in the teaching that we read and the teaching we, that we find that follows in those letters to the churches, you see how we are to live following Christ in all of life's circumstances. So as a wife, well, Christ wasn't a wife. As a dad, Christ wasn't a dad. But the apostle takes the life of Christ and says, dads, moms, wives, husbands, kids, workers, Everything we need is for to know the specifics of the path is found in the scriptures. But if our approach to the Bible is different than Jesus's approach to the Bible, then no matter how many times you read its pages, no matter how many times you go through it in a year, 
no matter how many podcasts you listen about the, to that speak about the Bible, or no matter how many sermons you come to, you will not be able to follow Christ without starting here. Follow him in the way that he approached the word of his father and responded to the word of his father. We'll be talking about this in coming weeks, but this morning I want us just to kind of get that nailed down in our hearts so that we don't, you know, move on to the next thing and assume that we've done it. When we look at the life of Christ, there is a very definite pattern for how he responded to the Father's word. And then there are, of course, teachings throughout the Bible about how we're to respond to the word. And we're going to have to start there. It's easy to come to the Bible and have kind of a a shallow acquaintance with it. You know, you have your favorite places And so you pick up the Bible occasionally and you read from your favorite books. Maybe you have favorite Psalms or favorite chapters in the New Testament, favorite stories from the Old Testament. And you find yourself just kind of going back there, hoping to get a a thought for the day. That shallow acquaintance with the Bible will not enable you to be a follower. It's like looking at just parts of a map. You know, and cutting out large sections and hoping that you can kind of connect the dots somehow miraculously and and be on the same path. And if you come to the Bible in a very utilitarian way, you say, well, I'm going to come to the Bible because it's the it's the user's guide for life. I disagree. While how we are to live is written in this book, it is not primarily given to you to explain how you're to deal with things. You know, you have user's manuals for things you buy. You buy a coffee maker and then you get a manual and you stick it in where we we have a drawer. We throw all those in. And then when it quits working, you know, what I do is ask Misty and Sarah, do you know where that user's manual was for that coffee maker? And Misty and I both are, you know, but Sarah knows and she says, oh, I, I put them all there and I go yank it out. And what do I do? Do I sit down with the whole user manual and say, I'm just going to enjoy an afternoon with this coffee, how to use your coffee pot manual? I go where? To the table contents or, or to the index and I look up my problem. Having problem with this? Exactly. I go to page 47. It tells me what's wrong. If you use the scripture as the user guide, the manual for the Christian life. And so you, you open it up when there's trouble in marriage, there's trouble with you know, uh, uh, with teenage children, there's trouble in the church, there's trouble at work, there's troubles in your thoughts, there's despair, there's confusion. And you, you throw up in the Bible and it's as if you want, you wish that God had put a, a table of contents for each of those topics. If you approach the scripture that way, you will not be able to follow Christ Let's look this morning at how Christ lived and then let's look at some general principles that the Bible as a whole gives us for approaching the Bible. So first, how does Christ interact with his Bible while on earth? Fundamentally, we could say Jesus Christ used his Bible, if we could say it that way, in the same way that every other human has to use their Bible. And it is that fact that has to grip us. There is nothing unique about the basic resources that the Father gave to the Son 
in his humanity here on earth. There's nothing unique in the resources. He had the same teacher that you have. He had the same resources that you had. He had the same kind of brain that you have. If you think of Christ that because he was God that he had an antenna or he was kind of spiritually hardwired right into the will of God and he automatically knew what was in Genesis through Malachi, his Bible, without doing the kind of things you have to do, then you have mistaken the humanity of Christ. And I, I wouldn't blame you for saying, well, I'm not sure that I can follow Jesus when it comes to how I respond to my Bible. I can obey him. I can take what he says. And by his help, I can do that. But I couldn't actually imitate him. But you can. One way we know that is because he was really human as well as truly God. And we can't cast either of those out. We would never say he was mostly divine. We would say, no, he is, he is truly divine. And it's the same thing with his humanity. He does not reduce his humanity. When God united his deity, the second person of the triune God, to a true human body and soul in the womb of Mary... It, it was a fully human body and soul. We can see this pattern in Scripture. We see that Christ has to use the same things that we used. There is, of course, the difference that he is without sin. So there is an unclogged mind. There is an undistracted heart in his will the Lord Jesus Christ has no sin nature that approaches a text and, and wants to argue with it. But he had the same resources, same teacher, same intellectual methods. He had to be taught. He had to read. He had to think. He had to compare passages. He had to, he had to reason. He had to listen to other teachers. He had to ask questions to get answers. He would have had to memorize and to meditate and to pray and talk to the Father about these passages. He had to use his Bible to know the will of the Father so as to direct his choices and his desires and his thoughts in a way that was always in perfect harmony with the Father's will. And he did. I mean, if we just think about it, the, you know, the simple fact that Jesus had to be taught how to read Aramaic or Hebrew. Probably Mary would have taught him in that culture. Mary teaches the God-man how to read a language that God doesn't need to learn. But as a man, he needs to learn. And it's the same thing with the Bible. Let me give you some examples. First is what Chuck read in Isaiah chapter 50. Turn there. I want us to look at verse 2. That's a picture of Israel and how wrongly they responded to God's word. And then verse 4 through 7, a picture of the Messiah. So this is a prophecy. As we read the chapter, we recognize that's Christ. It's that third of the servant songs where Isaiah describes our Lord. So let's look quickly at that. In verse 2, we have the context and the context is that when God speaks to Israel, Israel doesn't respond. So he, he asks the question in verse 2, 
Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. Now what he's saying there in that strange place to start is, Israel ignores the messages of God from the prophets. It's as if God visits the house, knocks on the door, and nobody can be bothered to get up and go and open the door and listen. Even though he is almighty and can still work. But they act as if it's hopeless, so they don't respond. In contrast, look at verse 4. The one who's speaking in verse 4 is not Israel, but the Prince of God, the Messiah. And look what he says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Okay, we, we agree. We see that in the New Testament. Those that come to Christ desperate and needy, he has just the right thing to say. But where does he get it? Does he have that antenna that you don't have? Well, then look at verse 4 again. It continues. He, that is the Father, awakens me, that is the Messiah, morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. What a wonderful statement. Can you not see that you have the same pattern? I wake up in the morning, I take my Bible, I open it up wherever you're reading, and I feel that I need God to kind of open my ear. I, I feel like I'm kind of hard of hearing sometimes. So God, come spiritually clean my ears out. And then he goes on to say his response. It says, I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have, look at this picture, set my face like flint. Uh, unmoving. And I know that I will not be ashamed, ashamed of obeying the Father. So we find that not only that God taught the Messiah so that he would know what to say, and that applies to every area of life, not just to his ministry, but we also see the response of the Messiah. I did not rebel. I did not turn back. The two words in Hebrew that the New American Standard translates, I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. The words in the Hebrew language are, are quite picturesque. He says, when the Father taught me from the Scriptures, not once did I openly rebel. Not once did I shake my fist at God and say, I'm not doing that. Second word. Never once did I turn aside or flee. Turn aside looks like this. It's the kind of disobedience we do when we don't want to appear disobedient. You know, there is the child that when you tell them something to do, they immediately say no and, you know, and then they get in trouble. And then there's the child that 
sees the first child get in trouble and you tell them what to do and they say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. And they just kind of uh, sidestep the command and it goes past them. They don't do anything. I mean, it doesn't affect their life at all that you just told them what to do. But open rebellion gets you in trouble. And so they just kind of sidestep it. There are ways of disobeying God that are quite out in the open. And then there are ways of disobeying God that are you just sidestepping a command like you never heard it. Or the, the word can also mean to flee. And that is when the command comes, you think, I, I cannot face this right now. And so you kind of run from it. And the proof there ultimately is even when it leads to the cross, which he describes, he refuses to rebel. He refuses to step aside. Look at another passage, Isaiah, uh, sorry, Psalm 40 Verse 6 through 8, the book of Hebrews quotes this and says, this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see what it says. Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, he says to the Father. It's the Messiah speaking. My ears you have opened. Again, the Father teaches the Son. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, he's speaking to the father, the son of God saying, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. So he's studying the word of God. He delights to do exactly what the scriptures say. The law is in his heart. That is, he loves to obey the will of the Father. And that is what the Father has taught him. Think about the, not just the study and being taught by the Father. Think of the memorization of the Bible. How do you think Christ could quote the scripture so frequently to deal with temptation, to deal with those who tried to trip him up theologically like the Pharisees, or to comfort the disciples. So many times he quotes from the, New, from the Old Testament. We, we find him. We, we, it doesn't say, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, hold on for a moment. Let me go back and get my scroll out of the house and I'll find that place I was reading the other day. He quotes from Deuteronomy more than he quotes from any other book. Do you think that Jesus had an antenna that gave him automatic memory of Deuteronomy? I, I think that's kind of how I viewed it for so many years. But do you understand that that means as a boy, as a young man, as an adult, he would have to do what you'd have to do? Of course, he doesn't have the sinful struggles ever. But as a true man, he would have to read and reread and maybe write it down and review. I mean, do, do we realize that Jesus of Nazareth had to study his Bible and review his Bible? Think about another resource that he had. He, he did have the teaching of other believers, and that is kind of difficult for us because we think, but he was the perfectly responsive one, and every teacher he would have ever met in Judaism would have been an imperfectly responsive person. Every one of his teachers were sinful. Every one of his teachers, you know, were flawed. So surely he never leaned on a teacher, but God has provided 
imperfect teachers in the church. As a 12-year-old, you remember, his parents are traveling home after worship down in Jerusalem, uh, and Christ stays behind. They don't know he's not with the larger family unit. They think somebody's got him, and he's a 12-year-old, and they finally go back and find him, and they find him in the temple discussing, asking, talking about spiritual things with the leading teachers of the day. Not all of those teachers were hypocrites. When you see the child Jesus asking and talking and discussing biblical things with these men, then you do realize that he needed to as a man. And you have the same thing. When we think of Christ in his Bible, do not forget this is the life of a true human, sinless, who had the same teacher as you have, God, the Spirit, the same resources you have, the Scriptures, spiritual teachers, the same pattern for you. Even though you are sluggish and you drift off the path at times, and you despair, and you get confused. None of that changes the fact that the path that Jesus Christ walked with regard to his Bible is the path that you are able to walk. Now, there's that. Now, what about the specific things about how the Bible would have us respond to it? You cannot simply approach the Bible in the same way you would approach every other book. There are things that are different about it, and I want us to think about this. We've talked about this in the past, but I think it's good for us to be reminded. Of course, it is, it is the work of God as we turn to Him, and in repentance and faith, we, we throw ourselves on the Savior. It is at that moment that we find the Spirit's work within, enabling us to really understand and appreciate the Word of God. Paul says that without that, it, you can't do anything but gather a bunch of you know, Bible facts in your head and they just stay on the surface of life and never make any beneficial change. You think of it, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 or Romans chapter 8, the worldly man, the carnal man, the, the man that is the man, the woman, the child that has not embraced Christ, they, they, all they have is an an intellect and a heart and a will that is still under the tyranny of sin and they cannot seem to understand the things written on those pages. Not really. Romans 8, it is impossible for them to really love what God writes there. They, they are fundamentally opposed to what they're reading. There are people who teach uh, Christianity as, a, you know, as a, a, one of the world religions in college. There are People who teach in seminary, who teach theology, and they do not know God. And when they discuss things, you realize you don't have to have the work of God in a heart to gather Bible facts, to arrange the doctrines and the ethics and explain them and teach them to people. But you do have to have the Spirit if any of that is going to beneficially reshape you. But understanding that, let me give you five quick things. And if you want the notes, you can just shoot me a text or an email afterwards and I'll get you the notes. 
because you may not be able to write it all down. So number one, the Bible is unique. And that means that when you approach this text, you have to understand that reading God's word is really more relational than just informational. I mean, we have to approach it like any other text. So, you know, we, we have to look at things in the context. We, we, we compare passages with passages. We, you know, there are basic rules for interpreting any written document. And that's essential. And then it takes time and study and concentration. And, and, you know, you have to rack your brain sometimes. You have to really beat against the text like Luther said. But it is so much more than just intellectual. It is a relational event. Let me give you an illustration to kind of show you the difference. Uh, all through school, you know, through, up through high school, I, of course, had to take all, all the math courses that you would have to take, and I really didn't apply myself in math. For one reason, from the age 12 forward, I thought, well, I, I feel called to preach, so I don't need math, you know? So, like, who cares about calculus? I'm going to be preaching. And that wasn't a very wise thing. It was really kind of an excuse to be lazy. So there I am. I'm in those classes. I'm not even a Christian yet. And I'm taking these courses, and I don't do it as unto the Lord. I'm lazy. But you know what I noticed? When I compare my math textbooks to the Scripture, I don't have to know the author of my math book to benefit from my math book. I, I just have to work hard. I don't have to like what my author, the, 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 the life he lives and the other things he talks about. I, I don't have to be in agreement with him really about any other area of life. I just need to look at page 75 and it's going to talk about fractions. And, and so I benefit from a textbook even though I have no contact with the author. But when it comes to Christ, when it comes to our Lord and we come to the word, if we're going to follow Christ's pattern, it will be a relational approach to the Bible. You cannot benefit from the scripture if there is not an, a relationship with the author and if that relationship is not clear and healthy. If you're having an argument with the author of the Bible, you will receive nothing more from the Bible, nothing that would really change you and help you. The kind of relationship you have with God right now, the, the state of that relationship, is it open? Is it transparent? Is there a, a sweet humility in your heart? Is there a hunger for God? Is there a desire to moment by moment to say to him what Samuel said when he was a little boy? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Is that it? Or is there an argument where you're putting your fingers in your ears? And you're saying to God, I'm not willing to talk about this area of my life. But if you want to talk to me about other areas, I'd like to know. And you think that you'll get something? Well, you can stack up doctrines and facts, but the scripture will do nothing beneficial in your life if you're having an argument with the author. The Bible is a unique book, but it is not a magical book. Reading through it every year, memorizing it from cover to cover will not benefit you. It is not automatic. It is dealing with a person. 
correctly that causes this book to have such unusual, unique power in a life. Sometimes one way that we approach the Bible that's not very personal is, as I mentioned, you know, this kind of user manual for life. Think of another illustration. Think if if you go out to the mailbox next week and you get a, a catalog from some company that you bought from before and you really like this company, you know, so you get this catalog and you get it inside and you know, you're flipping through it. You don't need anything from the company, but it, there's those shiny pictures. And so, you, you know, you flip through. Now, let's say it has, it's a clothing catalog. So it has men's clothing and then it has ladies' clothing in the back. It has men's jackets and then you have the sweaters and the pants and then you got summer stuff and then you got shoes and belts. And so you look at the part you're interested in. You flip through just those pages. You ignore the rest of it. If you approach the scripture that way, I'm interested in a few things from God. And uh, so let me flip to the spot that I'm interested in. But I'm not so interested in the other things. Then we can be sure that we will receive nothing. Richard Baxter, preacher in the 1600s in England, a Puritan, who did see, one of the few Puritans, that saw an extraordinary effectiveness uh, in his ministry. The town that he was at was called Kidderminster. It's kind of mid-England. And when he went there, very few people were interested in going to church, even though it was legally required. But, you know, you didn't get thrown in jail for not going. But by the time he finished his ministry there, he said, you could, have, you could walk out on Sunday morning, and while church is going, you could shoot a cannonball down every street and alley in this city. And you would not... You would not be in danger of hitting anybody because they're in the church. Baxter described the amazing gift of God giving you a book, which is not just a book, but is a personal vehicle. And here was his illustration. He said, because this is 1600s, he said, when Englishmen go to other countries, you know, you think of countries that don't have written languages, Africa at the time. And so when, when we go to, when we send our businessmen or our missionaries to places that don't have written languages, they are amazed when a letter arrives and the, the Englishman opens and reads this piece of paper and knowledge is transferred and then they write back something and it goes back and maybe it's a banking situation and so that one bank back home sends a letter and you your your bank sends a letter back and money is transferred and they don't understand it he says they don't understand language so they think the paper is magical god has given you a book and even though you live here And he is the infinitely transcendent, infinite being. You and he can carry on a transaction that is so enriching, so real and personal that the world around us would look at us the way people who didn't know what a language was looked at them. And they think, is it a magic book? Well, no. But it is a book by which we come to God. Let me give you a second. The study 
of this book, because it is uniquely a relational book, the study of this book will not benefit you if your heart and mind are not plowed and cleared. And we see that in the agricultural metaphors of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Jeremiah 4, you know this verse, thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Fallow ground is ground that once was put under the farmer's plow and planted and productive. But he's decided to let it lay fallow, undisturbed. And just not doing anything to it, what happens over time is the ground again becomes hard. And then the weeds grow all over it again. And if the farmer went out and threw the best seed on the hard, weedy acres, which have not been plowed or cleared, if he were to expect really any substantial harvest, he he would be crazy. So God says to the Jews, you're like this gardener who goes out to a part of his backyard. He's not plowed it. He's not tilled it. He's not removed the weeds. He he throws his plants and his seeds right on the top of the ground and goes back in, in the house. I mean, you could think of planting flowers instead of food. We have We have some plants around our house. I don't do very well with them. But, you know, if I took rose bushes and and, and threw them on the top of the ground all around the house, if I came out in a few months and saw them all planted and growing well, it would be miraculous. If you come to the word of God and your heart is hard, unresponsive, not, not full of hate, just calloused, And cluttered. God. His word. Will do you very little good. If it did you a great deal of good. It would be astonishing. You are hoping. In the reversal of all the spiritual principles. The spiritual laws of spiritual life. If you listen to podcasts and come for sermons and read your Bible every day and go to book studies and Bible studies, but you simply don't break up hard ground and clear it. Calloused, cluttered, nothing. New Testament, you know, the four soils, one of them is full of weeds, the seed falls there, it gets some roots down in there, it sprouts up, you think, wow, It's going to be a great harvest, but then, of course, the clutter, the weeds choke it out and it dies, and it produces nothing. Without regular plowing of the heart, without regular clearing of a mind, if we don't make room for the Word of God and eagerly, receptively approach it, then it will stay on the surface of the life and it will do nothing. And we all know this, sadly, probably by spiritual experience. What does it look like to plow your heart and to clear it? It means you come to the preaching or you come to the daily Bible study or to the James book study already having gone before the Lord and pleaded with him, God, I want the heart to be soft and ready for anything you say. I'm not drawing any lines with you. And after... You read or hear the word of God. You go back to God and in prayer, you go back as many times as it takes to make sure that 
by the grace of God, you find a suitable application for that word. So something's a little different having heard that sermon or studied James chapter 1. Something's not the way it was before. We have been before the Lord and in prayer. We've talked with God. We've poured out our heart and he has helped us to see this is where that truth goes. Agreeing with the word is not plowing the fallow ground. Appreciating, loving the Bible stories is not plowing the ground. Teaching and preaching is not plowing the ground. Because this is God's book, it's unique, and that means you're going to have to have the plowed, uncluttered heart. Third, if you're going to benefit from the book that God gives you and follow Christ in the way that he benefited from the book, you're going to have to guard against those idols. And that kind of really fits with what we just said. But listen to Ezekiel 14. Some of the elders of Israel came to me, came to Ezekiel and sat down before me. Now this is during the exile. Israel is under the judgment of God, Judah is, by the Babylonians for generations of idolatry. And so these are the leaders of Judaism and they're coming and they're sitting in front of Ezekiel that they know is a man of God and God speaks through him. And the word of the Lord came to me. So God does speak to Ezekiel. And it says this. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? It's an amazing, bitter truth. That we can be idolatrous and we would still be interested in reading our Bible or going to church and hearing a sermon. But it's equally true that God has never been willing to entrust us with new truth when our hearts are crammed full of idols. So if we want to follow Jesus Christ, we start with the word of God that he followed and we approach it the way he approached it. And that means that we will have to, by the grace of God, daily guard against any competing fillers and distractions, hopes and dreams, our ambitions, anything that is a competitor to God in our heart. Anything that when we come to the scripture, we say, I know this is right for me to do this or to listen to this, but I, I really, I, I'm really eager to get through this so that I can get to this. You could spot a heart idol like this. It's the thing in you that you treasure. It doesn't have to be bad. It can be a gift that God gave, but it's the kind of thing that makes you say, oh God, I, I would immediately and fully obey that passage. But, and then there's a reason, and the reason will be the, the, the idol, the wrapped in some explanation. Every one of us has the, the tempter right at the edge of our life, offering us some wonderful looking thing that we can take instead of the word of God. 
You have them in front of you now. You, you have them in front of you when you read your Bible daily. You have them in front of you when you get in your car and leave today. And it's up to you to go to God and find all the strength you need to rip them out. I can give you a fourth thing. God will not teach those who come to his word if they treat it as a sensual song. Again, Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel is strangely an extremely popular preacher under, the, under this period of judgment. So God says to him this. As for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, who speak to one another, each to his brother saying, come now and hear what the message is, which comes forth from the Lord. That sounds great. God has disciplined his people, but they've repented. And now every day in, in their doorways and walking down the streets and at work, they don't talk about worldly things. They say to each other, man, I can't wait till we get off work. Why don't you come with me? Let's go hear what God says through this prophet. Sounds wonderful, but then we keep reading. They come to you as a people come and sit before you as my people and to hear your mouth, uh, sorry, and hear your words, but they do not do them for they do the lustful desires expressed by their own mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song sung by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on the instrument. They hear your words, but they don't practice them. That's hard to detect, I think. It's easier to detect some of the other things. But this one is hard because you come to the Bible and you're emotionally moved. You think, wow, I never noticed that before. And you get all excited, but you don't obey it because... Your heart's already set on the course of doing what you want to do with life. And so it just passes. L like going and hearing a wonderful song that moved your emotions, but it, I mean, it didn't change your life. Or you come to hear a sermon and you think that was really helpful. I mean, I, I, I really got that one. I understood what they were saying. And, and, you know, I just I wanted to stand up and cry hallelujah or I wanted to hang my head and weep. And we think, you know, surely that's all that God would want from a person. I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm bored to death, but this time I was really engaged. And, but if it does not produce obedience, then it is treating the sermon or the, the word of God in church or at home like a really beautiful song that makes us tear up and feel fuzzy feelings about God and then... Nothing changes. Nobody goes to a concert thinking, when I hear those songs, that is going to just, that is going to recalibrate my entire view of everything. My view of a husband, my view of life, of a worker, of time, of money, of food, of clothing, of everything. No, we say, no, that, I mean, it's just something I really enjoyed, but now, now it's gone. I think of, and a modern illustration would be Paul Washer's you know, extreme, shocking sermon to the youth group. You, you have people that will listen to that because it is so moving, so shocking. I mean, it's, it's like a, it's a drug, you know, and then they don't change. You might be surprised to hear that John Newton 
back in the early 1800s, was really bothered and spoke out against people going and listening to Handel's Messiah being sung around Christmas. And you, you know, in the entire, uh, all the lyrics of Handel's Messiah are Bible verses. Nothing else but Bible verses. So you think, well, what could be wrong with that? But Newton noticed that people who loved fine music were crowding into the, you know, into the to theaters or where, you know, these concert halls, and they were hearing these beautifully sung scriptures about the Messiah and his death and his work and his, and his judgment that he would bring. And, and they were emotionally moved, and, but they treated it as entertainment and nothing altered in them. So he didn't blame Handel, he blamed them. If we come to the scripture and we're deeply moved and it wears off and nothing has changed. Do not be surprised if it doesn't benefit you and you find it hard to follow Christ because Christ never did that. Let me give you the last one. God will teach you today based in part on what you did with what he taught you yesterday. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Psalm 111.10 I remember uh, a quote by Samuel Rutherford when he got out of prison and he became the professor of systematic theology at St. Andrews University in Scotland. So mid-1600s. And he had a number of, you know, um, ministerial students, guys training to be preachers. And sometimes they would come to him and he had a giant brain, so they had all these hard questions for him. And one of them asked this question, how do we become great theologians? But the old word for that is a divine, a person who studies divinity or theology. And in the old language, this was his response. If you would be a deep divine, if you want to be a great theologian, I recommend to you, you can imagine the students ready to write down the book. Where do I get the book? Who should I go hear? Is it Greek and Hebrew? He said, I recommend to you sanctification. To have a life that is responding to what God said to you yesterday it goes a great way in guaranteeing that he will have more to say to you today. Stewardship. What did you do with the small thing he gave you yesterday? Did you invest it? Did you plant it? Did you make room for it? Then you can expect to get more today. Those that have a lot get even more. Those that have a little because they've mishandled it don't get trusted with anything more. So what you got out of your Bible readings this week or the ladies study last night or what you're getting right now or what you're getting tonight when you come for the men's study of James, well, there's a lot of things going on in our life, but really beneath all of that, there is what you did with what God said last time you opened a Bible. And if you applied it a little, then maybe he gives you the little today. And if you applied it a lot, and maybe he trusts you with a lot today. God is a perfect teacher. And there are some things that we, he knows we can't learn just by sitting at a desk and getting concepts. So again, simple illustration, a student of music who's wanting to learn an instrument. Let's say they want to learn the violin. And so they, they have some 
homework to do. They've got some music theory that they've got to learn. And so they're doing that. And then they're going to their classes and, and they're learning from the teacher and they're taking notes and they're getting it, you know. Oh, oh, I see. That's what that is. And then they go to the class and uh, the teacher will, their instructor says, okay, now we're going to apply this to actual playing. So take your violin and the instructor shows them everything. This is how you do that. And they say, oh, oh, I get it. Great. Thank you. That, that always has, you know, it's always tripped me up. If they don't go home and do it over and over and over again until it becomes muscle memory, then they don't get it, do they? Okay, I understood the concept. And then next week, so they don't practice. Next week, they come back to the teacher. You're on to the next lesson. And then he's showing you new things that you need to know to play the violin, but you didn't learn the last three or four weeks. You never practiced it, so you don't really know how to do it. You just have it up here. And eventually, the teacher realizes you're... You're three months behind. It doesn't do me any good to show you the next thing. You can't do this technique because it's built on all the other things. Guys, it's the same way with the Christian life. We are not learning about the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of regeneration and sanctification, the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of end times. We're talking about learning how to follow, to do what Christ wants us to do. So that means there's knowledge, but it has to be practiced. And without the practice, nothing else, no progress is possible. So we can say to God at the end of a conference or a book, I, I got it. But if you aren't practicing it, you don't get it. Let me give you one example of that from At the end of chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews is concerned that he can't really say much about Christ because the people are baby Christians, but they shouldn't be. Here's what he says. Concerning him, Christ, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of, of God, of the words of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food from the Bible, solid food is for the mature. Listen to how they became mature. Who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So they could say to the writer of Hebrews, no, no, we get it. Christ is the, is the real high priest. Christ is the temple. Christ is the sacrifice. And the writer says, yes, but I have so much more I'd like to say to you. But because you won't practice the application of these truths, because they're not gotten down by repeated, constant changing, doing well, your head's full, but you don't really have any maturity. You, you haven't grown at all. So I can't say, well, here's what's next. What if the reason that we feel stuck sometimes in our Bible study is not because we don't have a great library or a seminary education or the pastors stink 
and sometimes we stink at preaching, that's true, or the, you know, the Sunday school class I went to or the, the teacher wasn't really on target that day, but what if underneath and behind all of that is this, that there are ways the scripture has to be approached. The Lord Jesus Christ approached it perfectly, but we have disregarded that And so we are constantly exposed to things that are not bringing maturity. The great news about that is that every one of us, whether we've been a Christian for 50 years or three months, whether we're preaching every week or just trying to go to work and honor the Lord, every believer starts here with this book and with the Lord's pattern. And he will teach you. So take the concepts, take the general principles for how the Bible is supposed to be approached. Realize that Christ always did that. And ask him to disciple you. Teach me. You know, walk alongside me. Show me how those things can become the normal response, the normal approach of my soul to your word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a living word that changes us. But God, we pray, don't let us be careless. Will you entice us with the thought that we might really walk the path the king walked with the king if we will start with his word and follow his pattern. Teach us, Father, for your namesake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.